pleasing. But today, as I have a cold, as you can tell, it's actually a good thing that you are inclined to sit far away like the bad kids at school. Now, I was one of those bad kids at school. In seminary, uh, all the youth ministers sat in the back row and made fun of people because we were so immature. That's why we were in youth ministry. All the really serious cats, they were up front studying theology with great ex- great excitement and the smart Alex of us in the back. But those of you who would naturally be inclined to back row Joe status, good, di- good job today for sure. Uh, if you don't know much about my life, uh, this summer will be my 23rd anniversary. You'll meet my wife, Carolyn. We're short a nursery worker, so as is the case with church planter's wife, she always ends up, you know, picking up. She's like the utility infielder. She can play any position at the church, and so Carolyn today is working in the nursery. We got babies on the way and three or four different families in our small church, so understand that some probably time probably in the fall we're going to have two paid college workers, and then we're going to need uh, volunteers to help them each week. So that is a come in your future. Uh, so I appreciate you participating with that. But 23 years I'll have been married this summer, which is sort of difficult for me to believe, except for the fact that my son is graduating from high school next month, and that's even more surreal to me in terms of how, how the years are clicking away. But it was actually 23 years ago this month that Carolyn and I recognized at the most profound level that God had glued us together. It was before we were married. See, I got engaged to Carolyn. We were both living in the Washington, D.C. area. I was working as a disc jockey. And today, with my voice all low, I sound more disc jockey than ever. Welcome to Prism Church. Uh, but uh, I was a disc jockey, and my wife was a school teacher. And, uh, uh, and we met. And then what happened was is, uh, I, we got engaged in January of that year of 1990, and uh, I took a job in uh, Ocala, Florida, helping to start a contemporary Christian radio station there. And two weeks after we got engaged, I moved. And so for the five months that we were engaged, we were separated by 1,000 or so miles. And you might be saying, aw, but I'm telling you, that is a great thing. I completely recommend it. If you're a young, engaged person, embrace the distance because you don't fight about anything and all that attraction that you're feeling to one another. You don't even have to worry about it when you're a 1,000 miles away. Just say, you know, the Lord, we're going to honor him. We're going to keep our hands off each other until that wedding day. And, and i got to tell you, when it's Florida and Washington, D.C., the distance, that is not a problem. It was the best five months of our dating life we had ever had. And actually, it was a great engagement period, too. We would occasionally see each other. We saw each other four different times during that engagement period. The final time was in May, the second weekend of May, in, uh, uh, just before we were to get engaged, just before we were to get married. And we met in Raleigh, North Carolina, which was not quite halfway, but I was willing to eat up the extra miles and meet her there. I had a sister who lived there who actually now lives in Fort Worth, Texas, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, my, uh, she uh, housed us, and we spent the weekend together and ate and talked, and we were enjoying each other so much. And as we said goodbye to each other that Sunday morning to go back to our places, and we weren't going to get to see each other until we got married, we sat in the parking lot of a Hardee's and sobbed. And now I get the female awes. Isn't that fun? Oh, you know, I'm kind of a baby, so me sobbing is no big deal. But for Carolyn to sob is like a huge deal. And so we were, um, you know, and you can just see the, the little workers in the drive-thru at the Hardee's looking at us as we hugged and kind of, you know, sobbed. And we were literally feeling like we were being ripped apart. 
And it was the first time either of us had really felt that, where it was like, I do not want to be without you. I'm so tired of having to say goodbye to you. And we followed each other down the highway until we had to go our separate ways. And, of course, that's a really, it's more dangerous than texting and driving, sobbing and driving, because I couldn't see a thing. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, you know, and, and, and I just remember the feeling of just feeling like my heart was being ripped out of my chest, but in a good way. I know that sounds really masochistic, but I, it isn't. I was saying, this is really amazing. I, I've never felt the depth of love for somebody and felt loved like this ever in my whole life. This is the metaphor, and actually it's the word that Paul is using to describe his, his emotions and feelings being apart from the Thessalonian church. And, and before we actually dissect just two quick points from this section of Scripture, the first five verses of chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, I want to do something, and that would be to make a simple observation about that which seemed to characterize the relationships of the Christians in the first century. And then I think what... Paul is concerned about will shed some light on the intensity of the emotions that seem to surround them. When you hear Paul speaking in 1 Thessalonians 2.17, it's akin to what he said in Acts 21.1 when he told the Ephesian elders that he was torn away from them. The way the scripture is read in the original language, and one of our translations, New International Version, the new New International Version, translates it accurately the ESV, the English Standard Version, and the New International Version, 1984, translate uh, verse 17 of chapter 2 that we were torn away. The version that, that Matt actually read this morning is probably most accurately, is the most accurate translation, which is we were orphaned. It says when we were orphaned apart from you. And when we look at these verses here, uh, verses 17 through 21, you see some amazing characteristics these are the words that Paul uses to describe the feelings he has for the believers at the, in the church at Thessalonica. Uh, listen to these verses, and, and I've underlined some for effect. He says they were torn away from them. He says while he was, they were torn away, they were not torn away in thought. They were thinking about them. They had an intense longing. They were making every effort to see them. They wanted to come. And Paul said he tried again and again. This one, I think, is the most telling. But Satan stopped us. Now, i got to tell you, that isn't an excuse that works very well a lot. Like if you were supposed to go to somebody's party and you say, I was going to come, but Satan stopped me. That doesn't normally fly. You, you really have to have wanted to go somewhere and actually make that genuine claim that the only thing keeping me from you was the forces of evil. I mean, this is somebody who really wanted, he referred to them, really wanted to be with them. He referred to them as their hope, their joy, their glory. This is an intense longing for relationship. And it is born in many ways out of both their experience and their shared values. In life, uh, we infrequently in our culture get to experience this kind of intimacy with other people outside of our marriage or outside of our parental or family relationships. And there are some reasons why our culture works against us having this kind of intimacy because we're busy. It works because we're, it works against us having these kind of relationships because we are very individualistic. It's written into the constitution of our nation 
and it is in the DNA of our culture. This is about me. It's about my comfort, my pleasure. And in this case, these folks were suffering some persecution that bonded them together. Don't know how many of you have ever watched the HBO series produced by Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg and directed by Tom Hanks called Band of Brothers. If you've never watched this eight-part series, I watch it biannually because it not only reminds me just how spoiled I am as a tweener, 47, I wasn't a baby boomer and I wasn't a Xer and I just really haven't had much suffering at all in my life, but the sacrifices that people made for freedom, it's important to remember those things. But also what you discover in even the title of this video series is is that they were bound together as a band of brothers through their own suffering and through their own experience. And at the end of this eight-part series, they conclude this with actual footage of the men portrayed in this series. And one of them, who happens to be from West Virginia, mind you, says something really incredible. He, He actually quotes from Shakespeare and Henry V, and I quote, We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. There's something unique about the experience of war that pulls these people together in an experience that binds them together, that creates experience and joy that is shared for years and years and years, even in their absence. Perhaps you've had an experience, you know, akin to this, if not in war. I know that I had an emotional attachment and a a really close uh, set of friends in high school that I played basketball with, and we had a really incredible senior year, unexpected, unprecedented for us, and that bound us together. We, I have a connection with some of those guys that, you know, my 30th class reunion is coming up next month, and I can still remember the feelings I felt. Maybe you can experience that too. The question has to be asked then, why is this not part of our experience in North American churches for the most part? Now, I understand that there are exceptions to this rule, and you may have had some. I certainly had an experience like that, um, not only at the church we were fortunate to be a part of planting in Florida, but the one where I was a youth minister There was a tremendous connection, people working together, serving together, uh, working to see the Lord produce something for his glory and his honor. These are the kind of things, these are the kind of experiences that bind people together. But so many of us, and I put myself in this category too, we kind of shortchange ourselves from getting to have these kind of bonding experiences because we like to do things our way and we like to be comfortable. If you like to do things your way and you like to be comfortable, it's, it's, un, it's unlikely that we are going to put ourselves in a position where there's going to be this emotional bonding around this shared, difficult experience. And so without thinking to ourselves, how do we make ourselves walk into this kind of suffering? I think what we need to do is just simply be sensitive to the idea that God may be leading us places that might be difficult, but he has wonderful things in store for us there. Nothing ventured, nothing gained is something you hear a lot. And the fruit is always out on the limb. It's never next to the trunk. So if you want some of that, you got to go out on the limb. So all these metaphors that we use in culture, and they're designed to help you and I 
understand that if we want the similar experience, if we want the joy associated with relationships, certainly in a church context, there has to be shared challenge and shared difficulty. And yet calling people to that, particularly in this generation, in this city, is not an easy thing. And so that's why this weekend we've been praying. We've had uh, every four months we do a day of prayer and fasting. And for many of us, breaking that fast will take place at communion during our service today. We do this not because it's the religious ritual that you're supposed to participate in as a church, but because we really believe that is one of the means by which you bond to other people, is by shared prayer and fasting, but also a shared goal of saying, God, we'd like to see you move, and we'd be thrilled and honored if you'd work in and through us to make that happen. So I invite you, if you didn't get to participate with us this time, in the fall we'll do another one. And if you've never spent time praying and have never spent a day fasting, just seeking the Lord and putting your heart in his hands and saying, renew me and revive me, um, this is really your opportunity. So the third chapter of the book of 1 Thessalonians begins with a passionate declaration. Paul and his companions couldn't stand it any longer. They could not stand not knowing how the Thessalonians were getting along. They were consumed with the thought that the believers were suffering, that they were afraid, or worse, that they'd abandoned their faith. And so verse 1 of chapter 3 says, So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, and then they sent Timothy to find out. This is where we're going to pick up, and I have chapter 2 in... in the context of this kind of emotional, relational longing, I have two things that Paul was concerned about I want to share with you this morning. And the first, uh, from the first five verses of chapter 3 are this. Paul is concerned for their anxiety. And, and this is something that I think all of us can relate to. But it's sweet that Paul was worried about their worrying. In verse 2 I begin reading, We sent Timothy who is... Our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted and it turned out that way as you well know. Part of settling anxiety in our lives, it either could be the anxiety you have as part of a mission of God or just in life in general, a concern, a worry you have about your own provision, about your own needs, about your relationships, about your financial status. Part of dealing with this anxiety is recognizing that it is part of God's plan. And Paul is intent on settling anxiety in the hearts of these Thessalonians. And what he does is reminds them, he gives them a reminder that He had told them. They had a heads up. This was coming. You read it in verse 1. To strengthen and encourage your faith. I'm sorry, um, verse 2 and 3. So that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. Now this is the same word and same language used to describe in Ephesians 1. The destiny of the believer in Christ. The person who has from the beginning of time been foreordained to believe and know the Lord, our trials are destined in that same way. The difficulties and challenges, Paul said, I told you they were coming, and you now know that this is certainly the case. 
But he reminded them, don't you remember? You're a little unsettled, maybe a lot unsettled by the trials. What if I am to remind you that this is part of the plan? I didn't tell you everything's going to be great. Health, wealth, and prosperity is part of your future. There's never going to be any suffering in your life. If that were the message of the gospel, then I'm certain there would have been some disconcerting thoughts about, am I really a believer? Am I applying the principles of God's word appropriately? Am I having enough faith to exact the kind of blessing that I'm supposed to be experiencing here in Jesus? You know, is that really what's going on in my life? And, and Paul's saying, this wasn't what I told you was going to happen. I proclaim Christ. We've referenced back in this series in Thessalonians to Acts 17 a number of times, the message that Paul talked about, the cross, the resurrection. And what happened to Paul before he came to Thessalonica, when he came to Thessalonica, after he left Thessalonica, is beatings and imprisonments. And so when he called them to follow him and follow Christ, he was not saying, I want to encourage you that if you'll apply the principles that we've lined out here, you're going to live a really comfortable existence. He told them from the beginning, is this a surprise to you? I mean, this is not the first time that Paul or the disciples had heard this. Jesus said, if they hated me, what are they going to do? They're going to hate you too. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you too. Part of my anxiety when I think about things in life it's, is really my anxiety subsides when I get a real picture that not only is God sovereign, but he's also good. God's sovereignty, though, is the key to the peace. And one of my favorite aspects of the cross of Jesus Christ is that God the Father knew in advance that evil men would plot to kill Jesus. That the reason you and I are bound together by a sense that we're to come and worship with other believers on a Sabbath day and celebrate the grace of God in Jesus Christ, that which really binds us together as worshipers was a byproduct of God basically superintending, providentially in engaging with the evil of men. He knew and had planned that the evil of humans would bring about the crucifixion of Jesus. There's no other way that our sins are going to be forgiven unless human beings willingly crucify the son of glory. And when I think about that, I think, wow, okay. So great things that are going to happen in our lives are only going to happen at times through real difficulty. That should give us comfort. It should comfort you to know that there are some things in life that are verifiably the greatest joys that are only possible through the, the venue of pain. Today we celebrate Mother's Day. All of us had a mom. And unless she was fortunate enough to be born in the era of epidurals, that was a painful experience. You know, now you can cheat the curse if you want and take the epidural, and I, my wife certainly did with our kids. But my mom didn't. She had six kids, five in the first six years of their marriage. My mom, what a trooper. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. But I gotta tell you, we would all, I think, if you've had children, and if you want to have children, most people would concur that one of the great joys in life is the birth of your children, the miracle that is life, the, the miracle that you get to parent and raise and, and that you get to have a legacy and, and that God has given us the gift of not only having children but raising children. 
And that is only possible through the pain of childbirth. We're in a broken world. That's the way it works. But if you say, I'm never going to have kids because I don't want the pain, then you're only cheating yourself out of great joy. The anxiety that you and I might have about the difficulties of our lives will subside in part when we can rest in the notion that those are supposed to be part of God's plan. It's not something wrong with your life if there's difficulty. There's something very right with your life if there's difficulty. And that good things are what's coming around the corner. The hand of providence is using evil to bring about his good plan. Knowing the joy of Jesus's, Jesus knowing the joy of his future exaltation, it says in Hebrews 12, endured the cross and scorned the shame that accompanied it. And he is to be our prime example when times get tough. We must keep our eyes on him. There's been a verse I have had banging around in my head for the last month. I memorized it a long time ago. In fact, I've memorized it two different times. Uh, I memorized Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 as part of a navigator's thing I did in college. And many of you may have memorized that verse. And then, uh, then I memorized Hebrews 12, 3 as a totally separate verse. And, and then I cheated myself by not knowing verse 4, but the Lord has really encouraged me to keep that in my head as well too. And so I'm not going to show off and try to do it in front of all of you and memorize it because then I'll forget it and then I'll be embarrassed. But let me read to you Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses uh, 1 through 2, uh, 1 through 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us. I'm sorry, it says Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. That is the wrong reference and my fault. It's Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And here's the, the, the one the Lord threw in there for me. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, as difficult and challenging as we may find suffering in our life, we haven't yet been beaten to death for it. So we should be able to hang in there with it. We are encouraged, you and I, to keep our eyes on Jesus, to focus our attention on what he went through, and not just his sufferings, but his capacity to see the future, his capacity to believe in his heart that God is using bad things to bring about great joys. And if we can remember that Jesus had to endure such thing, even Jesus had to endure that, can you imagine the confidence and the courage that will swell up in us to be able to say, yes, this is a difficult patch of life, but I'm going to keep my eyes focused on him. This has been the challenge for us with uh, children who are teenagers. I was a youth pastor, as I mentioned previously, and I just want to declare with all of the strength I can that it is a whole lot easier to pastor youth than to parent them. And uh, that was not something I, uh, I foolishly imagined was the case. I never had the kind of emotional, distraught feelings I had about kids in our youth group that I have for my own children when they make bad choices or go directions I wish they hadn't or rise up and rebel or do whatever it is that kids do. 
I, I never realized that the reason that was going to be more painful is because I'm more emotionally attached to my children. That I'm more emotionally invested in these two wonderful kids that I have. And when they do things that harm them, it breaks my heart as their father. See, I, I, I know that trusting the Lord with them is the primary challenge of my existence. It's knowing that God is working in spite of the fact that the circumstances might be telling me from time to time that it seems out of control. But the confidence I have, the quiet confidence I have, the thing that draws me back is this notion that the Lord is sovereign and that good things come about because of difficult challenges in our lives. And when you're trying to get your teenager to respond to simply like a text, you're pursuing them and and, and they don't respond, you, you find yourself going, okay, this was so much different when they were younger. They wanted my attention all the time, and now they just want me to leave them alone. And in that experience, I've actually seen myself in dealing with God, who is constantly pursuing me, constantly after me, constantly sending me spiritual texts, and I am ignoring them. You know, you and I are in that boat And Paul's concern for our anxiety is in part mitigated by us understanding that suffering is not only uh, a part of your life, it's, it's normal and healthy, and it's the way God's intending to bring about good things for you. The second thing Paul would be concerned about is for the, their apostasy. So he's on one hand concerned for their anxiety, and the other thing he's concerned for is their apostasy. If you don't know what apostasy is, It is the abandonment of their faith. Um, The book of Hebrews, which we just read from, was written to a group of Christians and Hebrew Christians in Alexandria, Egypt, and the idea of that letter was there was rampant apostasy, people saying, I'm being persecuted. I don't want to any longer do this. I'm not going to stand here and get beaten up for Jesus anymore. And Paul's concern for the Thessalonians was that in the face of the persecution and the struggle and the pain, that some of these people were going to abandon their faith. So they sent Timothy, who was their brother and fellow worker in spreading the gospel, to strengthen and encourage your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have come, might have tempted you, and our efforts might have been useless. There is a move afoot, and, and I don't talk about it much because one of the things we don't want to do as a young church is to say, we think we're the only people doing it right in our area, and so we're starting a church to be cool, and everybody else isn't, or everybody else's theology is bad, and ours is good. Those would be really bad motives for starting a church it would also be sort of arrogant because it presumes that you have any notion of what's going on behind the scenes as if any of us know all of what's going on in God's kingdom in our area I will say that I'm aware enough though of churches that don't teach the truth of the gospel I'm aware enough that there are many mainline denominations and other churches that have veered far away from what the gospel was meant to be which is sinful people had their sins atoned for by a wonderful Savior. As simple as that is, as, as low-brow as that might be to some, 
uh, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, is at the heart of what we believe. Now, we think there's more substance to it than that, but the reality of the gospel is, is that you and I have been rescued, pursued, and rescued by the wonderful creator of the universe. And the way we were rescued was that his son took the brunt of our sin's burden. We should have been punished for our sins, and we were not. Jesus was punished in our place. And the resurrection of Jesus simply verifies that. It is the means by which we have confidence that Jesus is who he said he was. It's the means by which we have confidence that his apostolic ministry, the, those who took his word and spread the gospel, are legitimately of the Lord and are speaking the word of God. And it's the main confidence we have that scripture is the word of God. All these things are rooted in Paul's message. He's concerned about their faith. If theology wasn't important to Paul, if it was just about the church doing good things, which I think we need to be doing more good things. I just think we need to be doing more good things as a result of our joy in Christ. It's not that I don't agree with the assessment of some churches, including our own, that we could be doing more to care for the people of our community. We could be more, we could do doing a lot more on just about every category. And why shouldn't we freely evaluate ourselves that way? Because Jesus has given us the freedom to say, sure, we're well short of what we could be. I think, though, that it's not just about us doing good things. There is this section, that which propels us to our faith, which is the actual beliefs that we possess. If theology didn't matter to Paul, he wouldn't have posited that the tempter would have made their efforts useless. If someone had come along and messed with this doctrine or tweaked that doctrine or eliminated this component of our faith, Paul, if he was this wonderful, all-inclusive kind of guy, wouldn't have been, oh my gosh, they're ruining the gospel. They're changing the message. He would have just been like, hey, you know what? Hey, we all come at it from different perspectives. You know what I mean? You can't really know, you know. And so everybody would have just kind of moved on from there. Paul was burdened and afraid. If every theological path ultimately leads to the Father and Jesus isn't exclusively the only way to God, then any alteration in the message would have been considered by Paul a minor thing. And that's not what kept him up at night. That's not what created anxiety in him. It wouldn't create anxiety in me if we planted another church and I didn't care what they taught. I'd be like, oh, okay, they're off in some funky land. That's okay with me. As long as they're happy and doing good things. That's not what Paul's mind was on. And this was the case when he wrote to the, the church in Galatia, another church in that particular province. I'll read his address to the Galatians who were being duped into thinking that in addition to Jesus and belief and trust in what Jesus did to accomplish their salvation, they had to add something. In their case, it was the circumcision. The, the, the Jewish Christians were trying to persuade the Gentile Christians in Galatia that if you really were saved, I mean, if you were really saved, there's this thing you need to do in addition to having a relationship with God through Christ. And in their case, they added circumcision but in our day that could be any number of things you could go to any number of churches say well you're not really a christian unless you do and then fill in the blank paul wrote this to them in galatians 1 6 through 10 
I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And I have to stop right there and just say, it is very clear from Paul's declaration here that there is a real, true gospel and there is a perverted one. So right away, you know that Paul knows that his original message, the one he's defending, the one he's excited about, the one he's afraid that they're abandoning, is the real one. And Paul is willing to say that there's a gospel out there that is really no gospel at all, and it is a perversion of our gospel. He continues, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than one, the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. So Paul clearly believed in an eternal condemnation. And for people who would pervert the gospel, the grace of God, our rightness with God through Christ alone and faith in Christ alone, he would say that those people are deserving of eternal condemnation. As we have already said and now say again, if anybody's preaching to you a gospel, and here we go with the repetition in the Bible, you say it twice, things aren't so nice. Preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I'd not be a servant of Christ. And why would he say this? Why would he say, if I was still trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ? Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing, pleasing men? No, the gospel itself is offensive. It's offensive to our nature, which says, I want to be God. I want to be worshipped. I want to be told that I'm acceptable just for who I am. There's nothing wrong with me. There's no need for me to be improved. There's no need to be forgiven. There's no need in me. Jesus is not necessary. The gospel is that we are lost without him and without him in our lives working in and through us. We're never going to know the joy of his presence. Unless he forgives us of our sins, we are never going to know eternity. Unless he is one who would come and take our place and suffer for us, then we are never going to know the joy that was set before him. That he endured the cross, scorned its shame, and now sits on at the right hand of the Father where we worship him. He pursued you and I because of that passion. The cross and the gospel are demonstrative of the lengths he's willing to go to to restore you and I. And that should give you and I hope. And this is why Paul was concerned for their apostasy. Because any alteration in the gospel would diminish your and, I, your and I capacity, our capacity to see the love of God in its fullness. If Jesus didn't need to be crucified, Acts 17, read it again, his message to the Thessalonians. If the Messiah didn't need, if he didn't, he mustn't had to suffer. If the Messiah wasn't destined to suffer at the hands of evil men then you and I would never know that he willingly walked through that for us. See, to take that off the table is to take a major, major manifestation of the character and the grace and the glory and the wonder of God. And if you've ever been somebody that 
wondered, as I have on a number of occasions, does God really have affection for me? I'm sure he puts up with me. God so loved the world, the cosmos, throw him in there, put, him in, put a number on him. But does God really like you? And in our individualistic world, we ask that question, what's my value? And there is no greater place in the world for us as individuals to discover our value and worth than to think that the Savior came and suffered for you and for me. I'm confident, and, I, and if you aren't, you should know about the absolute horror that was uncovered these past two weeks in Cleveland with regards to these three young girls who were kidnapped a decade ago and then found being imprisoned in a dungeon under somebody's house for a decade and suffered just all sorts of terrible things. What, in addition to feeling a compulsion to pray for them and a sense of just heartbreak for the terror that they had to go through, I I think a lot about what the parents went through. And in the end, one of the dads stood in front of the cameras of CNN and said, I never quit believing. I always kept looking. I was never going to give up hope. And I just think after 10 years of not seeing your baby girl, how easy it would be to just kind of resign yourself and quit looking. And this was a guy that not for a second thought, I'm going to assume she's deceased. And while he'll have, to, he'll have years of having to love and care for her and the recovery of all that she suffered at an evil person's hands, I was struck by how that is such a great gospel metaphor that God hasn't given up on you. And and I know there are times where my struggles with sin or my lack of faith in God or my inability to see difficulty as as a gateway to God's blessing, you know, anything like that, where I find myself saying, you know, Lord, why in the world are you putting up with me? There's great confidence that you all And I can have in the love of God that he is relentless in his pursuit. And those passionate descriptions that Paul would say he had of the believers in Thessalonica, this is the love God has for you. When Paul said he was torn away, he was orphaned from them, this is the feeling, that sense of my children have been taken from me This is the emotion, this is the feeling, this is the disposition of God the Father. You've been taken away, and he relentlessly pursues his lost children. He is intensely longing for relationship with his children. He's again and again pursuing you and I. And the only thing often that keeps us from experiencing him is our own stubbornness. We are God's hope and joy. We are the apple of his eye. These characteristics that Paul described his relationships with the Thessalonians, it's important to know, too, that this is why it's so important for us to be able to do that with each other, to share our lives together so that we can say, you see this love I have for you? This is supposed to be a mirror reflector. It is supposed to, if you will, be a prism through which you get to see the love of God. And we didn't like pick that metaphor you know, out of nothing. We, we intentionally named our church Prism Church for that reason. That the light would come through the prism and it would reach tongues, every tongue, nation, tongue, and tribe. 
that people would, through our church, experience the light and love of God. And that means that when we greet people on Sunday, as crazy as it might seem that that's a priority, and I wrote to you a couple weeks ago and encouraged you, you know, being here early and, and meeting people who are new, is, it's, it's just a way for you to communicate that you, you love them and you care about them. We, you don't have to do a bunch of other stuff. You just have to be able to do the stuff that we actually have. You don't have to go out in the street today and just start walking up to strangers and loving on them. Love the people who don't know Jesus in your workplace. And that brings us to our, our moment of experience and response today. I had a, an occasion to share my faith recently a couple different times with a young woman who came up to me when I was having breakfast. And, um, and I've decided that I'm going to spend the next month praying for her. And I'm going to passionately pursue God that he would passionately pursue her and then any chance I have to tell her about the love of Christ, I will. And I'd invite you to join me in that. When you come for communion today, there's a table up here. And if you feel there's a single person in your life that you would like to pray and have others in our church for the next month pray, God, pursue this person, love them so much that you'd reveal yourself to them. Then what you can do is you take that card and write the name on it, keep the card yourself, but then you can sign the sheet of paper over there that says, give me updates. I want to be contacted and I want people to be praying for this person that's all on the list right there. Make that a part of your response time this morning as you come to the table to enjoy the presence of God. Let's pray to that end, that our church would be a place where the experience of the passion of God would be that which we know through each other. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the reality of your love for us and how we get to see that and how through the gospel we get to not only see that we're safe in your arms, but that there is this motive in your heart, a desire in your life, a desire in you to to love us and care for us. And I would pray that today, uh, as my brothers and sisters,